0: Uh, 1 Thessalonians is what I'm focusing on. Over today and tomorrow, I'll be looking through uh, chapters 2 uh, to 4. And the goal is uh, to actually allow the, the apostle, allow Paul to speak to our hearts, our motives, our ministries, our, our thinking about, about gospel ministry together. So that's my uh, desire as we look at this. And in a sense, I'm going to angle across the text a little to try and help us. Uh, do exactly that so what do I pray and uh, we'll reflect on it together let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you speak to us clearly in your word and our desire over these couple of days is that uh, you will in fact speak to us uh, as pastors as ministry families as people who have a desire to see your word go rapidly throughout all the world uh, father help us to encourage each other Uh, Help us as uh, couples to be uh, helpfully feeding back to each other in an open way, a way that builds foundations uh, for the future. So, Father, we pray that your your hand will be upon us and that you'll strengthen us for this task together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My mother is 83 years old. And a couple of years ago, I was sitting down with her trying to sort out some of the stuff in her house. Yeah, she's at that, you know here you go through life, you start off with nothing, and then you acquire until you get to a certain age. And then you get to a certain point where you start giving things away and getting rid of things, so you start shrinking again, and then eventually you cut it out in a box yourself. You know, It's yeah. a funny, life is like that in terms of the way in which it works. And my mother was at that sort of peering back sort of stage, and I was helping her do it. While we are doing it, I came across this, this box that I'd never seen before. We opened it up, and inside was this old, leather-bound, you know, traditional, brass clasped family Bible, okay? Now, I, I've been a member of this family for 50-odd years, and uh, I had never, ever before seen this Bible. Roman Catholic family, that's our background. And so I, I said to my mother, "What? where would this come from? You know, i have never seen this before. And my mother, who's about four foot nine, right, uh, got this really embarrassed look on her face, just blushed red. Right after the roots of her hair, I get my red hair from her. Right, she just looked. And of course, at that point, I just desperately wanted to know what was, what was the story behind this, this Bible. And here's the way it worked. It was the 1950s. My mother was home with uh, three preschool children. And this guy came knocking on the door. He was a Bible salesman. Can you believe it? <laughs> Can you believe that anyone in Australia could have made money out of selling Bibles door to door? Well, this this was the guy. He came to the door and he said, "You know, I'm a Bible salesman. And I'd like to sell your Bible." And my mother, who was well trained, said, "No, no, no, we're not interested." He then said, "Ah," he said, "Do you go to church?" And my mother said, "Yes, I go to St. You know, Blotsets Catholic Church just around the corner." He said, "Ah." Oh, he said, that's where Father McGreeley is, isn't he? And I said, yes, that's right. He said, yes, I was talking with Father, Father McGreeley the other day, and I told him I'd be going around selling Bibles to some of his parishioners. And he said, I oh, said, I don't think any of my parishioners would want to buy a Bible. And at that point, my mother was so incensed at Father McGreeley that she signed up on the dotted line <laughs> and bought this Bible. <laughs> she, was, she was so offended that Father McGreeley would have, would have said that. It was only until, I guess, later on that afternoon that it clicked that uh, Father McGreely hadn't actually said that and that this Bible salesman had just conda, condor blind. When you turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians, there's a clear sort of background here of Paul uh, defending himself, defending his ministry. And there are obviously questions about whether... He was like a, a first century Bible salesman huckster. You know, whether he'd, he'd sort of come with that sort of uh, trajectory. He'd obviously only been with them for a short time, maybe just a, uh, a couple of weeks. If you turn with me back to Acts chapter 17, we'll just take a look at the background to, uh, to this passage, okay? Acts chapter 17. You see Paul's connection. Uh, with these these Thessalonians when they I'll read from verse one when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue as his custom was Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying, There is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post-bond, and they let them go. And as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And uh, off they went. So you get the picture. They'd probably, probably only been with this, these guys maybe a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, maybe a month. It may have been longer, uh, but, but most people think it's probably that sort of short time. There are a few who got converted, some, uh, some God-fearers. Uh, you see there was some Jewish jealousy, verse 5 there. And as a result, they're driven out. When you turn to... Uh, 1 Thessalonians, Uh, Paul writes to this young church, uh, this young church that he'd had to sort of leave after only being with them for a couple of weeks. Taught them some things, but obviously not as much as he would have liked. And yet he speaks to them as as the model church. If you go to chapter 1 and verses 6 to 8, this is how he, he talks about them. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcome the message of uh, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and say so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and archaea the lord 's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and archaea, your faith in God has become known everywhere i mean, aren 't they great it 's a great accolade to uh, uh, to be speaking this way to a young church to actually praise them for their faithfulness towards God and give thanks to God for the extraordinary work that he'd done in this young church just in preserving them. However, when you get to chapter 2, it's very clear that what's on the agenda is Paul's defence of his ministry. Uh, he'd obviously left them after a couple of weeks and so some were saying, well, was he, was he just a, you know, a first century religious performer? Came into town... Did his thing, uh, performed a few tricks, passed the hat around, got the money, packed up, shot through. Is that what was driving him in ministry? And so Paul steps into defending his approach to ministry, defending what he'd done, uh, defending the gospel. Do you ever feel uh, the need to defend your ministry? Ever feel, uh, or the need to defend your husband in his ministry, or do you ever feel under, under attack in ministry? Yeah, uh, you There on Sunday, you're uh, in church, and uh, you preach a little hard out, but you're feeling discouraged. Uh, you're struggling along in church in different ways, putting in the big yards, but uh, not seeing many results, much fruit for your ministry. And then uh, someone you've known for a while in the congregation comes up with a serious look on their face and says to you after the service, you know, That tune uh, that went with that third song that we sang wasn't really very good today, was it? And you just feel at that moment, just mentally, because you're well-trained, right? But you mentally think, if only I could just grab this person and just beat their head against a wall, you know, and try and knock some sense. You you ever feel that way in ministry? Yeah, very very politely, of course. That's why we only do it in our brains in Adelaide, right? uh, Perhaps it's different else. There's a sense in which Paul is is under a attack. And what he does here, I think particularly in chapter 2, is give a framework uh, for thinking about ministry and for assessing genuine ministry. Okay, let's look at it together. It's a ministry from God. I mean, would you say that Paul was a failure in his ministry or not? Uh, in a sense, you know, he just had this, this ministry to a small persecuted church and then shot through success or otherwise paul talks about how to make sure your ministry isn't a failure Uh, chapter 2 verse 1 you know brothers that our visit to you was not a failure he goes on in chapter 4 sorry verse 4 of chapter 2 and he says on the contrary we speak as men approved by god uh, to be entrusted with the gospel Paul says in verse 1 here uh, that his ministry wasn't empty or pointless. It wasn't just a a puff of wind. And then he talks about the fact that he and uh, Silas and Timothy, their, uh, their ministry was one that was given by God. And in fact, that's the central focus here. It's on God and it's on accountability to God, faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his gospel. That's on the agenda. See, what What makes ministry a failure? What makes ministry a failure? In 1993, when I became the senior pastor at Trinity, it was an interesting year for us. Uh, We'd been on the staff there for four or five years, and at the beginning of that year, uh, the senior pastor at Trinity uh, said that he was leaving the church and coming back here to Sydney to be a bishop down in the Wollongong region. At the same time, we were approached by another church interstate. Not in Sydney, but another interstate spot. Similar church to Trinity, evangelical in a non-evangelical sort of city. So we had these, these two church possibilities running side by side. The potential of becoming uh, the pastor at Trinity or the pastor of uh, this other church. And uh, I remember uh, we got to about the middle of that year and on consecutive days we received invitations uh, to become either the pastor at Trinity or the senior pastor of this other church. Both arrived in the post within 24 hours of each other. And I sat down with Sue uh, the night after the second one arrived and I said as far as I can tell here are the options. We could go to this other interstate church which is smaller but with enormous potential for growth it had gone through a difficult time but had all sorts of possibilities and was located in a great spot. And I said, if we go there, we'll be known as the heroes who helped this church go ahead. Right? Or we could stay here at Trinity in this rather big church and potentially be known as the pastor who destroyed the church. What do you think <laughs> we should do? You, know? now, you understand that to ask the question that way is to automatically fail. It's to automatically be a failure. Because whenever you put anything else except God and his gospel at the center of your ministry, then you have failed. If it comes down to you and your reputation and where you are heading, it all just falls to the ground. Paul goes on Talks about some of the marks of authentic ministry. Um, verse two, he speaks about the the God-given courage uh, that he'd been uh, supplied with. We previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you His gospel, in spite of strong opposition. You go through Paul's journeys—Philippi, or uh, Berea, or Athens, uh, Thessalonica—and uh, all you see really is pain and knockback and hit after hit after hit. Most places, it's, it's physical sort of opposition, except when you get to Athens, where people just just ridicule the idea that he is a Christian and what he believes. But it's just opposition, and you need God's strength to do gospel ministry. You do. I mean I take it we're all here because of the joy, the delight, the privilege that we have being involved in serving God and his gospel. But that doesn't mean it's not tough and that you don't take hits and that it's not a struggle. And you certainly need uh, courage to stand as God's person in this world when you face that sort of opposition. You need courage To be bold. Now, uh, I've had to stand up at Synod and talk about various issues in the past, and Adelaide is a polite place. I've been booed and hissed and jeered at on the floor of Synod in our diocese. Uh, But, friends, it's the same for any of us, no matter where you are. You need courage that comes from God uh, to stand firm for him and his gospel in this world. That's what Paul says here. He talks about the courage, the God-given courage from God. He also talks about the the nature of the God-given gospel. It's interesting the way this is expressed here. Uh, Notice um, verse 2. Paul says... With the help of God, we dare to tell you his gospel. Or verse 4. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. That is the gospel of God. Uh, Back in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says our gospel, that is this gospel that comes from God came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. That is, the gospel comes from God, and it comes with the power of God. It's not just words, it's conviction. It's um, the Holy Spirit. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he talks about the way in which this gospel, when it was preached to you, caused you to turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. And verse 13 of chapter 2, He says we thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but as it actually is the word of God. Whatever ministry you're engaged in this is the conviction you need to keep coming back to time and time and time again. That is it is the word of God that transforms lives. Now I've been around in ministry long enough to know uh, that all sorts of other issues come up that we're meant to attach ourselves to as our hope for the future. Uh, Whether it be uh, the church growth movement with all its strategies, uh, better organisation, better music, the uh, latest evangelistic strategy that comes along, the, the, the wave after wave after wave of how to do church better and to grow churches comes along. Now, if I was to ask you what is the wave, that is currently the most popular one here in Australia. Uh, if I was to ask you that, what would you say? Geneva push. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, that's actually true, you see. I'm not saying Geneva push, but the latest wave to come along that we attach our hats to is church planting. Okay. Now, can I say how dangerous that is? Now. You've heard me, I, I'm not against church planting, I'm actually doing a bit of it, you know, trying to help other people with church plants, so I'm not opposed to church planting. But we must never attach our confidence to church planting rather than the gospel of God. I'm not trying to polarise those, for I understand that the whole purpose of church planting is to take the gospel <coughs> of God and see it preached and proclaimed to people who haven't yet heard it. But you understand, it's just a... It's a mechanism for doing the gospel proclamation. It's, it's a means to achieve that end. And our hopes mustn't be placed in church planting. Well, that would be a, a distraction, wouldn't it? You might want to engage me. Maybe I've pressed a button. I shouldn't have. But it seems to me that that's the way it is, you see. And that's just consistent with uh, a range of the strategies and dangers that have come along. Because if you, if you make the church planning thing the big thing, then you actually distort uh, the nature of the ministry we're engaged in. And you're quite likely uh, to distort the whole question of how you approach ministry as well. And we're likely to elevate those who can plant churches above those who can't plant churches, as if somehow they're more important. Or, you understand, there are a whole lot of ramifications uh, that can flow from having a slightly distorted view of the nature of ministry. If your confidence is in God and his gospel to achieve work in the lives of those you preach it to, that's a great relief, an enormous relief, because you don't, you don't have to play God. And you don't have to somehow take responsibility for the ministry in, a, in the way that only God should. See, It's God. And it's his gospel. It's not our gifts, not our strategies, not our love for people. They aren't aren't the means by which people get converted. It's the gospel that actually brings that sort of conversion. Paul sets it up like that in this chapter. Uh, The authentic uh, nature or the core of gospel ministry, God and his gospel. But then what he does is he goes on to talk about how to be authentic gospel workers Uh, the whole nature of authenticity in ministry. Uh, It seems to me we all want to be uh, authentic in ministry. Uh, We do. That's our desire, so that what we say and who we are uh, match up so that they're consistent. Of course, for Paul, when he was with this young church, it was only a very brief period of time, wasn't it? Maybe three or four weeks that they got to observe him. They heard the gospel message and then they got to observe him in ministry. What I'd like you to note is the way in which, even though he was only with them for three or four weeks, he expects them to know what drove him, what he was on about, to be able to see who he was in ministry. Do you notice the uh, the repetition of the you know idea that's here in... um, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 um, verse 5 of chapter 1 sorry Um, towards the end of that verse you know how we lived among you for your sake you go to chapter 2 verse 1 he says you know brothers that our visit to you wasn't a failure Uh, verse 2 of chapter 2 we've previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi as you know Uh, verse 5 you know we never use flattery Uh, verse 9 slight variation but you remember Uh, verse 10 Uh, you're witnesses of, uh, of what we did And on and on and on it goes. Verse 11, same sort of idea. You know that we delve with you as a father deals with his own children. Uh, He says to these young Christians, you know how we went about our ministry. In ministry, people ought to know who you are in ministry. Many of us, I think, struggle with the whole fishbowl thing that comes with, with life in full-time vocational <coughs> ministry. We struggle with the sense of people being able to see into our lives all the time because we're on public display. And it's, it is true, isn't it? I mean, when you turn up on a Sunday, uh, whether you're the pastor at the front, whether you're part of his family, then people observe you. They observe your hairstyle. They observe what you wear. They know what sort of car you showed up in. They, people do, don't they? They just, they study you. They know what you're like. Now, if you're like me, uh, I, I tend to find myself resisting that to some degree. Uh, you know, I don't like aspects of that. But, you know, I, th- I actually think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate that people should be able to see our lives. I don't mean that they should scrutinise what we wear or that sort of thing. But there's a sense in which they should be able to see whether the gospel we proclaim matches the life we live. They should be able to see whether there's a a disjoint between those two, whether they actually come together and they're consistent. And we should be prepared in the sort of gospel work we're engaged in for people to be able to observe that and to see what's going on. Paul obviously thought that they would be able to see that in him. He goes on, he talks about them being able to observe his motivation. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4 he says, We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. People pleasing. Uh, I'm at the stage of life where I'm now going along to uh, 50th birthday parties. And the advantage with these sort of decadal sort of birthday party gatherings is you get to catch up with all these friends you haven't seen for a while. And I particularly find it helpful because I connect with these old uh, non-Christian friends that I've had over the years. Uh, we went to a you know, 50th birthday party not that long ago. And I got to connect with these non-Christian guys that I'd done gymnastics with when I was in my teens or early 20s. And I don't know if you've, if you've had this sort of uh, uh, experience, but in those sort of um, uh, gatherings, and when, at least this is what I find, when I get together with these blokes I haven't seen for years, we tend to play a game, right? It's an unspoken game, uh, but the game is called Who's Had the Most Successful Life, right? And we stand around this circle and we start to swap stories about who's had the most successful life. At this 50th birthday party, I was with three other guys in a circle. Right? There was Dave, there was Mark, there was Ken, and there was me. And I think our partners were all involved or observing us play this game. Right? So Dave kicked off. Dave's about 10 years older than me, and his great ambition in life was to retire by the time he was 40. Right? To make enough money before he turned 40 so he could stop working. Now, that meant he had to make some sacrifices. He couldn't afford to get married, for example, because <laughs> that would be too expensive and would block his goal. He had a series of relationships but never got married. And he retired at 39 years of age. Uh, we asked Dave how life was going for him. This is about 20 years further on. And Dave said, he said, you know, since I turned 40, life's just been, and I. this is quote, Fun, 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 right? That was his, uh, fun, 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 you know? That's what he said life was about, okay? The lens moved, okay? We, we moved on to Mark. Mark's a couple of years younger than me. He's gone into the building industry. Uh, he's, he's been very successful. He lives in one of the most expensive penthouse apartments in Adelaide, drives a sports car, and had a slim blonde girlfriend about 20 years younger than him who was standing behind him at the time. And Mark's life has been very successful. Thank you very much, okay? We moved on to Ken. Okay, Ken runs a, uh, a national business right, that's been very successfully. franchised it, moved around Australia. He's made squillions of dollars. And he spoke about the fact that he'd just been to Paris uh, with his uh, girlfriend. And while he was in Paris, uh, he proposed to her under the Eiffel Tower. Right? And so they are engaged and about to be married. And also while he was in Paris, he'd run in the Paris Marathon. Uh, and uh, then he turned to me and said, and say, so Paul, uh, patted me on the stomach. What are you doing to keep fit? And are you still at that same church that you've been at? Okay, so the game got to me, and I moved into senior pastor of Holy Trinity mode. You know, I really come from a Our church that's doing some great things. It's quite a significant church, and we've been church planning and little, you know. So the game sort of reached its. It's rounded sort of nature, me defending my position. On the way home in the car, uh, Sue and I were chatting. And she said, "Uh, you know when we had that conversation with those other three guys in the car? And she said, you know what I think we should have done? (laughs) You pick up this. This is the use of the royal we. (laughs) 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 (coughs) What Sue was saying was, you know what? you should have been doing but she comes from Adelaide so she's very polite okay and uh, (laughs) she said you know I think maybe we should have talked a little more about Jesus rather than our church and she was exactly right of course exactly right Paul talks here about the whole question of motivation see what what motivates us in gospel ministry he says, we don't try and please men, but God. I'll let you in on a secret. When I come to conferences with other church pastors, the tendency for them is over morning tea after the first session to stand around and don't, don't play the game who's had the most successful life. They play a game called Top That Pastor. Okay? What's going on in your church? Ooh, our church has been growing substantially this year, right? Pastor number two, ooh, thinking our church hasn't been growing this year. Uh, what will I say? Oh, we've had some great evangelistic outreach that's been occurring, right? You know? Pastor number three, our church has been shrinking. The evangelism stinks, you know? So he says, well, we're not into numbers, you know? And, and you know, the, you know it's so, it is so tempting to play top that pastor. You know? What is the right motivation for ministry? It's not about pleasing men, but God. Verse 6, he repeats that. It's not about the praise of men. It's all about pleasing God. See, if you're about about the praise of men, then you know what you're likely to do. You're likely to cut corners on the gospel. Uh, You're likely to avoid confronting sin. Um... The issues that, that cause you trouble, you're likely to put those to one side. It then goes on. He's got sort of a checklist here in these early verses of chapter 2. Uh, things to watch out for. Right. Verse 3 talks about uh, impure motives like uncleanness. Obviously, it's a, a reference to sexual immorality. It doesn't spring from impure motives. Uh, in ministry, this is one of the great killers of ministry: uh, people falling into sexual immorality. It's great to have these couple of days away, and this issue, the whole question of uh, temptation to immorality, infidelity in marriage, is on the agenda, and so it should be, uh, because what what often happens when I've caught up with guys who've fallen into sexual sin in uh, ministry is that often they've gone into tough ministry situations, they've stretched, they've, uh, they've burnt the candle at both ends, they become emotionally exhausted, they stop feeling life, uh, they stop uh, having a sense of the, the joy or, or uh, um, spark that comes with life, and they look for it somewhere. And often what they do is they look for it uh, in an affair <coughs> with another woman so they can actually feel like they're still alive. So you, be careful. Right. It's good that we can actually talk about those sort of issues. He talks about flattery. Verse five. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. I'll come to greed in a sec. But uh, he says, you know, we never used uh, flattery. What's the um, What's the difference between flattery and encouragement? The encouragement is a word we're allowed to use in Christian ministry, but we mustn't use flattery. Okay, how, does, how does that work? Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a, uh, a funeral. At the end of this funeral, the funeral director came up to me and he said, he said, Reverend Harrington, he said, I think that was probably the best funeral I've ever been to. He said, you conducted that so well. Now, if you've done funerals, you actually want to hear that? Like, you want to hear that you've been helpful uh, at an occasion like that to people. So I was pleased to hear it. But then, I I don't know, there was something about this guy that uh, made me wonder what was going on. So I I said to him, "Um, what did you think was so helpful about the funeral? At which point, uh, this is literally like we're face to face. At this point, his eyes just went like this and went, you know, he said, no, 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 this is not the way the game's played. i meant to flatter you. You're meant to say thank, you know, thanks very much, but you're not meant to ask me a question. No. And I could see him going, what did he say? What did he do? And then eventually he you know, had that sort of light of recognition. And he went, he said, I thought it was really helpful when you said, let's bow our heads for prayer. I really shouldn't have asked the question. I don't think it didn't help much. But what's the difference between flattery and encouragement? Well, you understand, flattery is designed to manipulate people for your own benefit. I think that's the distinction here. See, so this guy I'd read in the you know funeral director's handbook: if you want return business, make sure you flatter the uh, minister who takes the service, and he'll come back to you with more funerals don't use flattery tempting to do it though uh, especially when you're church planting what are the big issues with church planting you're trying to get your core group together you're trying to raise the finances to make it happen okay? and if you've got a brain between your ears you'll know who's got the money and you've got to try and work out ways to get your hands on that money to use it for good purposes of course do you understand that you, you can get twisted motives so easily right? no, no flattery no wrong motives as you go about ministry. Nor greed. He talks about that in verses 5 and 6. And verse 9. That desire to want what other people have. This can take all sorts of different forms, I think. Uh, most of us make significant sacrifices to go into full-time gospel work. And we do it willingly and joyfully. The bite often comes when you're actually in ministry. So you're into ministry. You've made the sacrifices. It's hard going financially. And... When it's hard going in ministry, you start to think about what it could have been. You know, uh, you know, Sue and I, right, we both uh, worked as lawyers. Now, I suspect we could have made more money, right, if we didn't go into full time Christian ministry. Just a guess, you know, I've got that feeling. Right? And when it's tough in ministry, it's easy to then think about what could have been in another direction. Right? But that's just greed, it really is. Or change the lens slightly when you start having kids and you've made decisions for yourself when it comes to full-time gospel work and then you start to see some of the implications financially being played out in their lives and you wish somehow you could change that uh, so that they could be like the other kids. It's just greed. Uh, Quite honestly, it's, it's wanting what other people have rather than actually... Seeing the joy of the Gospel. And this is a big one for us, I'll tell you why, because it's a big one for our nation. Like We are, we are an extraordinarily materialistic nation. Uh, money does drive what we do. I don't know if you've read uh, Affluenza, but if you have, you'll know the way in which that, uh, that dissection of Australian culture it talks about the fact that people overwork, but when they're surveyed they say they prefer not to overwork because they know they sacrifice family in the process. And the analysis is they overwork to get the money for the sake of their family that they sacrifice in overworking to get the money. And you've got this horrible cycle happening. That's the national cycle. And that is the, uh, the cycle that we live in the context of. Right, you've got to be astute and understand the potential and the power of greed and wanting what other people have. Um, and I think that you know one of the most helpful things I've found in trying to combat the whole idea of greed, is to actually work at generosity. I don't know if you're like me, but um, when I realise something's an issue, uh, sometimes it's helpful to name it and confront it. But at other points, I actually find the most helpful thing is to work out what the um, almost the opposite thing is and to work at that. So one of the things I've found in being in ministry and confronted by that temptation to greed is to try and work hard at generosity, right? trying to work hard at being generous with what we have for the sake of the gospel. So let me just pick up on money for a second. Um, what Sue and I have tried to do over the years is to try and think through how we can be more generous with our money, let alone our, our time or whatever else we've got, but our money for Christian ministry. So every year we try and increase what we give away for gospel work. Uh, So currently we we currently give away about 40% of our taxable income for Christian ministry. Now, because all of you are clever pastors, you know there are things like MEA accounts and housing and things like that that are often thrown in that don't get counted in taxable income. So just let me re-equate the numbers. Um, We currently give away about 25% if you take into account the value of our housing and our MEA account as well, which is largely at our disposal. And we try and increase it every year. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that's how you think, ooh, aren't they generous? Right? I'm just trying to push the parcel on the whole question of how we work at being generous for gospel work when we're in full-time Christian ministry. You want to model? You want to be models of <coughs> gospel workers? This is an area you need to model as well and you want to combat greed, which is prevalent in our culture, this is one way in which you combat it. We're actually working at how you keep devolving your resources uh, for the benefit and the furtherance of the kingdom. Keep combating greed. There are lots of other things that can um, uh, be motivations that can distract you. Uh, For some of us, it'll be the issue of power or control. Uh, For some of us, we'll actually be controlled by Uh, resentment because we've been hurt and that can actually cause us to withdraw and to kill ourselves off. Let me finish by talking about uh, the whole nature of ministry, uh, relationships, boundaries and balance. Um, It seems to me this is one of the areas that that people in full-time gospel work struggle with. The whole question of how they, they balance their households with their ministries. And soon I'm going to come back to it when we talk about marriage and ministry just after morning tea. I just want to point out uh, verse 8 of chapter 2, which I think is is just a a stellar summary of the way in which Paul thinks about gospel ministry. It's beautifully balanced, I think. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well because you'd become so dear to us. Not only the gospel, but our lives as well because you become dear to us. Notice the clear distinction that he makes between the sharing of the gospel and the sharing of his life. But also notice how he connects the two together as well. See, the gospel... And life. You actually can't do one without the other. Uh, you can't have an accurate gospel and a loveless life. Uh, that's not appropriate. Or you can't have the absence of engagement in the lives of those around you and a clarity on the gospel. Uh, Paul knew the generosity of God to him and therefore he shared his life with others. That was the way in which he thought about it. And he provides us two illustrations. Uh, verse 7, the nursing mother. Uh, verse 11, the encouraging father. Uh, it's a great image, isn't it, that nursing mother image? Uh, because the thing about nursing mothers is they're always on demand. Uh, they're always on call. Uh, and it's like that with gospel ministry. There is a sense of that that constant call on your life to give yourself to others. There's a gentleness even when you're stretched and feeling fragile. That's brought out in verse 11. A father dealing with his own children and encouraging them. Now when when I talk about that way though, uh, ministry in that way, uh, what you'll be aware of is the fears that you have engaged in ministry. Um, if ministries like this, aren't there, any, aren't there any boundaries at all? Um, you know, I fear being used up and getting exhausted and uh, consumed by ministry and the people around me, or I fear my husband will be consumed and exhausted by gospel ministry, and there'll be nothing left over for me or for the family. various fears. Are there no boundaries? Actually, if you get exhausted and chewed up, you're not useful to anyone, I don't think. Or <coughs> well, maybe the fear is that you'll get hurt. Uh, that is, if you expose yourself in life and relationships and ministry in this way, then you'll be hurt. And so your temptation is to, is to pull back. Uh, will you get hurt in ministry? Absolutely. Of course you will. Uh, that's just life. It's actually life, but it's certainly life in ministry, especially when you're a focal point person in something that people see as important. But it's actually this gospel concern that takes us forward. Now, these couple of days, they're, they're a great couple of days for taking the temperature, and you need to do it uh, as honestly as you possibly can to take best advantage of being here. Uh, it was, uh, I guess, about three months ago I had a call from a guy who's in ministry in Adelaide that I've had contact with uh, for a number of years now. He's a good friend, he and his wife. And uh, he was in tears on the phone. Now, I've been closely walking with him through what's been a difficult spell in ministry. And I think he's been faithful and godly. Uh, but he has, I think, inherited uh, a congregation of ratbags, really, uh, do you know, it's just, it's just been tough going I think because uh, I've seen this guy in ministry I know the way he operates I know the way he loves people uh, but he has just gone through the wringer uh, for all sorts of different reasons and he was in tears on the phone but you know it, it wasn't to do with him uh, his wife had just come home from a women's meeting and his wife is a stellar woman uh, she is a gospel woman who loves people she's very gifted, very engaging and in many ways, she is sort of so just so strong throughout this whole period. But she hit this Bible study, and there was a woman in the group who just made a an insensitive and cutting comment to her, and she just lost it, uh, which I can hardly imagine this woman doing actually, but she just lost it and burst into tears, left the room, came home and this guy said, you know i <laughs> I think it 's now time uh, for us to think about." You know, leaving full-time gospel work. Uh, he was so just so distressed for his wife in that situation. Now, can I say, uh, that is the nature of gospel ministry. Uh, you'll come here for these couple of days and some of you will, will be rejoicing and celebrating and um, excited by what God's doing. Uh, but some of you, Uh, will be feeling the knocks, or the uncertainties, or the heartaches, the family issues. You'll be really aware of the blockers in your church uh, that are just causing you pain. And maybe you're wondering if it's worthwhile. Uh, Friends, this letter uh, that Paul writes, he explains why it is worthwhile uh he he points us to the glorious god the life-changing gospel and encourages us to fix our attention there to rejoice in the privileges that we have and being involved in this gospel ministry it's god and his gospel it's about loving and serving the people that god has entrusted to you and i think that uh these words they give us a chance just to reflect and to take the temperature on where we're up to and to ask God to give us his perspective on his people, his church, his world, his gospel, and uh, what his purposes are for us.